This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Phil Bryant joins us to talk about the latest round of budget cuts. In the governor's office, we're uh, operating on the same budget that Governor Ray Mabus was operating uh, under in the 1980s. We've cut our travel budget by 90, uh, 95%. So I think they can adjust to that. They, they also have to know we can't print money. All we can spend is what money that we have coming into the state of Mississippi from taxes and other sources. Plus, a former governor shares his thoughts on a possible new education funding plan. And in this week's book club, we're redefining food in the South. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Phil Bryant says the national economy is in a slump, so more state budget cuts could be coming in the future. This week, the governor ordered a third cut during this current fiscal year to adjust for revenue shortfalls. He's ordered a $43 million total budget reduction. He's also pulling $7 million from the state's rainy day fund. The Republican governor tells MPB's Teresa Collier more about the cuts. Sure. What we do every year, we look at the revenue and we project. We... um we get some very smart people together and say, what do you think the revenue will be? And sometimes we miss it. If you miss it by 1% and you're dealing with a $6 billion deficit, so uh, that's 50 or $60 million. So uh, that's probably where we're at. We're about 1% off on projections that we made a year ago. So I pulled $7 million out of the rainy day fund. It still has about $300 million in it. That's our reserve fund. And made about a $43 million cut so that we will have a balanced budget. It's an accounting uh, responsibility that the governor has and um, to make sure that we've got a balanced budget. So what do you say to those agencies that have to make those cuts now? What, what are your thoughts or suggestions? Well, I, I think they need to understand they can manage less than a 1% cut. Uh, in the governor's office, we're uh, operating on the same budget that Governor Ray Mabus was operating uh, under in the 1980s. We've cut our travel budget by 90, uh, 95%. Uh, so I think they can adjust to that. They, they also have to know we can't print money. Uh, all we can spend is what money that we have coming into the state of Mississippi from taxes and other sources, uh, and we cannot uh, run a deficit. Uh, so we have to adjust the budget if the, if uh, 
revenues, uh, I think they will continue uh, uh, along this line. We may have to make other decisions in the future, but if we're going to balance the budget, we have to make cuts when times uh, are more difficult as they are now. What do you say to legislators who are considering the 2018 budget? What do they need to take into consideration? One of the things they need to do is only spend 98% of the money. The other 2% of that money needs to go into the rainy day account. This is a perfect example of why we pull down on that account. But if you spend only 98% of it, um, if you miss it by 1% or 2%, you're still at a balanced budget category. So we need to be more accountable. This budget has grown more than 30%. Uh, over the last five years. We put almost a billion dollars more into the budget this year than we did in 2012. You can't sustain that type of growth in government uh, no matter what state you're in. So what, do you, what does this say about Mississippi's economy when you have to keep making these? Oh, I, 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 well, I think it says the same thing in 30 other states. Um, 30 other states are having to make this adjustment. California's got a $1.5 billion deficit. This national economy uh, has been in a slump. It has been for several years. Uh, nobody wanted to admit it. The administration did a very good job of trying to tell everybody things were fine. It is not. Uh, if you look at what the APD, uh, uh, EPA did to the energy sector, we're 13th in the nation for production of oil and gas, and that has basically stopped because of the regulation from the Obama administration. Uh, those are being taken away. We're going to kick that uh, industry back into high gear again and uh, begin to produce goods and services that will generate tax money. Governor Phil Bryant is also listening carefully to the legislative conversation on education funding. He says if a special session is needed to address the funding formula, he will call one. I think what we're looking at now is how we go about spending money in education and what are the outcomes. Uh, and we would like to know that we get more children that graduate from high school. We'd like to know that they're doing a better job in reading and math. Uh, we'd like to have this a teacher and student-centered formula. Just now it spends more money on the administration. So uh, if we have an agreement between the lieutenant governor and speaker, I will be eager to call a special session to improve that formula. Uh, it is an old formula. It's been around since the late 1990s. It needs updating, and I think now is the time to do it. Governor Phil Bryant. House Speaker Philip Gunn says education funding remains one of his priorities. The Republican from Clinton says he wants to do a better job funding schools. We're continuing to work that. We want to make sure that we do it right, not that we do it in a hurry. And that is uh, where we're at. We're continuing to, to make sure that what we do is correct before we, we uh, do anything. Are you looking at a new funding formula? How, how much are you taking into the Ed Bill into the consideration? Yeah, that was the stated goal from the beginning, was to find a better way of funding our schools. Superintendents complain from year to year that they are unable to project because of the volatility of the current funding formula. So what we're doing is bringing in a way that's a little more predictable, a little more stable, and superintendents seem to embrace that idea. The legislature has been under pressure to adopt a comprehensive infrastructure improvement package of some kind. Early attempts at funding such a project have been unsuccessful. But Speaker Gunn says he thinks lawmakers are gaining momentum on an infrastructure agreement, as he tells our Teresa Collier. We have put forward a, an Internet sales tax collection, which will hopefully generate between 100 and $150 million, and a bond bill to do $50 million for bridges. We've also met with MDOT and asked them to produce $50 million of savings, which they have given to me, but I have not yet reviewed. If all three of those mechanisms go into place, we're looking at somewhere around $200 million that will be devoted to 
roads and bridges, which is a huge step. The analysis that I have seen indicates uh, an upper level of about $375 million. So we will be more than halfway there addressing the issue if those measures are adopted. And then, of course, moving forward in the future, we'll, we'll evaluate uh, what other options may be available. But I think that's a huge first step this session to address that problem. How big of a priority is this to, to fix the state's infrastructure? Well, obviously, infrastructure is a big part of economic development. Uh, companies, when they consider your state, want to know, uh, do I have the ability to get my products to my factory? Do I have the ability to get my product to the market? Uh, what's the quality of life for my family if I move them here? And roads and bridges play an integral part of that, as do schools and jobs and other things that we're working on. So it, it's a big deal, and we're making it a top priority and have put forward some real solid measures that, if adopted, will help address some of those needs in the near future. It doesn't mean we stop looking for solutions as, the, as, the, as time goes on. So and do you see that happening this session? What we've done this session is the three things I've mentioned. We have looked for savings at MDOT. We have brought forward a, a bond bill, and we have passed a tax, uh, uh, internet sales collection bill that will help generate some revenue for that. House Speaker Philip Gunn, a former governor, shares his thoughts on a possible new education funding plan. We'll hear from him next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Eric Westervelt. President Trump's policies have prompted millions of people to get off the couch and into the streets. But which kinds of protests have worked and which have fizzled? We'll talk with an activist and author of Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MVB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The future of Mississippi's public education funding mechanism is uncertain. The legislature is still deciding how to deal with a series of recommendations from the education consulting firm Ed Build. It's a process former Governor Ronnie Musgrove knows all too well. He was the Democratic lieutenant governor when the Mississippi Adequate Education Program first became law. He was governor when the formula was fully funded for the first time. He says funding for education is important, and he's glad the issue is being discussed. The fact that we're talking about education is good. The reason that we're talking about it is not good. The The fact that uh, we're underfunding our MAEP formula, which is the basic funding formula for all of our schools in Mississippi, K-12, through uh, is a bad spot to be in. Uh, to me, I have always equated education with opportunity. It's not just personal opportunity, but it's economic opportunity. It's job opportunity. It's job creation opportunity. When we don't invest in our schools and our in companies and businesses take the position that, that we're iffy on funding our, our education and so consequently can't produce skilled, productive workforce people, then they're hesitant to invest in Mississippi. And over the last several years, even though we have a lot of good things that supposedly would bring business and industry into our state, 
it's not happening. Our personal income is flat. Our tax receipts are flat. Uh, we're not gaining as we should. And to me, a lot of it has to do with our lack of investment in our schools. Do you think our state leaders don't care enough about education? It, it, it's hard for me to make that statement because all of them went to school. And, and I have to feel like that all of them believe they're where they are right now in large measure because they're of their educational opportunity. If that's the case, then why should we be exclusive in helping opportunity for some people and not look at our state as a whole and offer that kind of educational opportunity for everyone? To me, that's the objective of the state and the leadership of the state is to help our state overall every community collectively improve. Ed Bill, the company that was hired to Mm -hmm. come up with a a recommendation regarding a funding formula, this is a sort of a lead point for the legislature. They haven't gotten anything done in the regular session. Now they're talking about a special session. You sued a couple years ago over not funding MAEP. How do you feel about, because there are some that feel that ditching MAEP is not the answer, that if you fully funded it, it would be a successful program, whereas others feel that we need to throw that away and try something new. I'm in the camp of the former, and that is if you fund MAEP, then that is the formula that sets out all of the requirements that we have for schools in our state. The legislature, in fact, sets out whatever school should do and the rate or level at which they should do it. They've also defined that in order to accomplish that achievement, MAEP has to be fully funded for a school to have enough money to do what it's supposed to do. The state has defined that as a requirement and then won't fund it. There is no question as to why a lot of schools cannot succeed. And you see a lot of schools uh, that have conservators appointed, others are taken over. There are consequences for not reaching the achievement levels that the state sets. So to me, No one has made a case that says if we had fully funded MAEP for all of these years, then our education system would not be where we want it to be or expect it to be. I, I believe that had we funded it and kept the requirements up for our schools, I believe you would see a lot more production and activity and achievement from our schools. We still have pockets of achievement all across the state. I mean, that's the way it always will be. But you want everyone to realize those opportunities. And to me, uh, before you go and ditch the funding formula for something else, which you can tell is not has not been thought out or planned uh, a, a great deal because the time frame is very short. And, and speaking of that, let me go off on a particular area that I think is important. When we actually implemented the MAEP funding formula, we replaced a funding formula that had been in place since 1953 called the minimum program. To do so, we worked with the school administrators, the principals, teachers all across the state, and we actually phased in the MAEP funding formula for five years from 1997 to 2002. And the first year for full funding of MAEP was 2003, and that is exactly what we did. We phased it in, then funded it for the first time. But we worked with the school districts so that they would know 
what to expect. We wouldn't blindside districts, and districts knew what they were to get and knew what they what was expected out of them. Whereas right now, it seems like things are much more in chaos, much more uh, uh, behind closed doors, and, and the legislative process is the legislative process. That That is the prerogative of the legislature to look at the funding formula, to make changes in the general law as they deem fit. I would just simply encourage them to continue to look at what the investment in education uh, brings and what the lack of it unfortunately cost us. Let me ask one final question. Do you think this move towards Ed Build's recommendations is a way toward charter schools and vouchers? I hope not. I, I believe that when you turn your back on public school as a whole, then what you've done is you've turned your back on educating the whole of the workforce of the state. Because let's say that you've got any state in the nation that has charter and has voucher school programs that on a large-scale basis, that generally takes care of 10 to 15 percent, maybe 20 percent of students, which means that 80 percent of the students are still educated in our normal, regular public schools. If our emphasis and focus are off of the public schools and on the charter and voucher schools, then we're not putting the emphasis on our workforce that business and industry look to to locate in our state. And I think that is a misdirection, missed focus, and lost opportunity. Governor Ronnie Musgrove, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. In this week's book club, we are redefining food in the South. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The 2017 Governor's Arts Awards come to MPB-TV Thursday night at 7 p.m. This annual ceremony celebrates the state's artistic and cultural heritage. The Mississippi Opera, Vastai Jackson, and Allman Brothers bandmate Jay Moe are among six Mississippians honored for their artistic contributions. Catch the celebration Thursday night at 7 p.m. on MPB-TV. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Food is an important part of culture in the South. How do you sauce your barbecue? Whose grandmother made the best fried chicken? Sugar or salt in your grits? In this week's book club, Wendy Atkinsare explores these issues and more. Her book is called Consuming Identity, the Role of Redefining Food in the South. In it, she talks about the role food can have in a person's identity. It's really a matter of uh, what you grew up with, what you surround yourself with now. 
not all food memories are positive. And we, we often talk about the positive memories, but sometimes they're negative and it can be a sort of rejection of a, of a past, a painful past. I mean, there are definitely differences and that to, to me, to us, that's part of the interesting story of food in the South. I'm from the Northeast originally, so I can talk about food from an outside point of view, even though I've been in Mississippi for many years now. But mm-hmm. when I think of food in the South, grits immediately comes to mind. We don't have <laughs> grits in the North. We definitely have different kinds of foods here. Um, grits, I know that that's one that you're not a huge fan, apparently. Um, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> but And I have to admit, I wasn't either. It's it's not as big of a staple in Texas, but it's definitely growing on me. But it is a huge staple here. I mean, you can't order breakfast anywhere without grits being included. And people, you know, I, I've talked to people like, I don't understand grits and what its popularity. And they're like, well, if you put butter and salt and pepper on it, you know, it really helps it or cheese on it and everybody has their own way of eating it and and a strong way to defend it. <laughs> That's right. Well, see, you've gotten to something really important there because we can have strong um, differences of opinion over food. So do you put sugar in your cornbread or not? That's one that everyone yes. has strong opinions on. Do you serve sweet or unsweet tea? Um, grits or no grits? And so We identify maybe with particular groups based on what we think about those foods, but then we have this conversation, and it's as simple as what you you choose to put on your plate. Now we can talk about the division, the differences, and through those conversations, we can have these great moments talking about our backgrounds, our likes, our dislikes, where we come from, those kinds of things. When you talk about food culturally, does it all come down to comfort? comfort food and your childhood associated with those nice memories? Well, a lot of it is. Uh, One of the things that we found, and and certainly, you know, the Southern Foodways Alliance is great at getting out uh, food stories. Everyone has a story, and they're more likely to share the positive ones. But, you know, honestly, sometimes we eat things because they're available. Something that's growing in the garden, something that's cheapest on the shelves and the in the only grocery store we can get to. Again, sometimes those aren't positive stories and yet they've shaped who we are. Do you have specific stories in your book? Yes. That's one of the things that we really wanted to bring out was the, the stories from the South. Some of them are stories that uh, we gathered from other sources like the, the Southern Foodways Alliance or other books that talk about Southern food, but a lot of it is from uh, the traveling that we did to write this book. We spent at least two weeks on the road uh, traveling and eating. Really tough job. Um, We were (laughs) happy to do that so we could complete the book, but really years traveling to different places. I think one of the best is when we went to Doe's Eat Place in the Delta and called ahead to see if they could meet with us and maybe just answer a few questions. We, we certainly weren't looking for anything very formal, but we were met at the door uh, by Charles Serna, the owner, and he ended up sitting down at the table with us and ordering everything on the menu. We never even saw the menu. He insisted that we try everything they could make. And he got to tell the story of his place, his family's place, Um, That was probably one of the most memorable nights on our trip. Being in the South, what are your favorite foods that are considered Southern foods? Well, 
cornbread has always been a staple in our household. And, and I tell that story in, in the book of learning my grandmother's cornbread recipe from her with my mom there, with my sister there. Uh, so cornbread's always on the top of the list, and it can be controversial depending on how you make it. <laughs> Do you um, add sugar or not? I, you know, this you is to... this is a touchy question. You're right. putting me on the spot, yeah. but I, I do actually. I add a touch of sugar, and I'm told this is because of the the German influence. Um, in yeah, our you, you family, it's a bunch of people just turned off their radios. <laughs> I know. I believe me. I have struggled with this, <laughs> and, and in fact, recently have been testing it without the sugar just to see, you know, like <laughs> <a> transition. <laughs> okay, you can stay on the fence then. <laughs> the book is called "Consuming Identity: The Role of Food in Redefining the South." We've been speaking to one of the co-authors, Wendy Atkins Sayer. Wendy, thank you so much. Happy eating. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, MPB's Teas and Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? You can find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app in any mobile store. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.